Hey, Ramona. Happy New Year, Jackie. <laughs> Is this like Blur's Day where the new year is on for a few months? <laughs> well, no one knows when we're recording this. This but, is true. Um, what better time, what, what better subject to kick off the new year than the vagina? Oh, my God. Who doesn't love talking about the word vagina? <laughs> vagina, vagina, vagina. <laughs> um. You know, we've been doing this for a couple of years now. We've met some really um, incredibly wise and helpful experts. Um, I sort of felt like we were at a place where we were almost doctors ourselves. And then (laughs) then we got onto this podcast with the Vagina Coach. And there was so much, Ramona, I was kind of laughing and then I almost wanted to cry. How come we don't know this stuff about our own vaginas and our pelvic floor? It could save us so much bloody time, so much money, so much frustration and aggravation and depression, and it could save a lot of relationships too. Why don't we know this stuff yet? Answer me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, I, you know, we have, had our friend Nav Graywall on a while ago, who is also a pelvic therapist, and we learned a lot from her. And yes. we just kind of dug in deeper with our new friend, Kim, Kim Vopney, who is the vagina coach. And, you know, Kim focuses on f- female pelvic health, and she's so passionate about educating women in pregnancy and motherhood and in menopause. And we really dove down deep into the <laughs> literally. vagina, literally, as she really walked us through the anatomy. And, and to be honest, there was just some stuff that I learned about my own anatomy that I thought I knew, but now I know so much more. And I think a lot of women are going to learn a lot in this episode and um, maybe have a look at their vaginas. <laughs> That's right. So please tune in to The Vagina Coach. Well, there are many different nicknames for this body part, the beaver, the minky, <laughs> the ma- the bajingo, or the vajayjay. All of us ladies have one, but how well do you really know your vagina? Who better to help us understand this very important topic other than a vagina coach. <laughs> Welcome, Ken. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, there's. I had a postcard one time that had probably, I don't know, 50 or so different nicknames for, for the vagina. 50. All because yeah, we absolutely. just don't want to say the word vagina. Yeah. Well, since starting this podcast, I don't think I've ever used the word vagina so much in my life. Like, ever. I've but said did it you guys? It. <laughs> did you guys ever have, like when you were a kid, like, I don't know how you guys grew up, but did you have another name for your vagina or did your parents have another name for your vagina? Ooh. Mine was always vagina. My mom is a, an OR nurse and she always, okay. made an ad, she was adamant about every, every body part was named its proper part, which I am grateful for at the time. Of course you cringe yes. a little bit, but yeah. Um, but no, I didn't have any, I didn't have any names. I use, I use a lot of slang names now just for a little bit of fun because mm-hmm. it's not always comfortable for everybody. But at yeah. the same time, obviously I stepped pretty boldly into saying vagina by using that as my handle everywhere. So I was like, okay, this is one of the more hated words in the world. I'm surprised you get through on social media because there's been so much um, censorship around women's Oh, I have struggles. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Yeah. Ramona, did you have a nickname for? I did. My mom used to call it the foofy. The foofy. 
That's what she called it. We never said vagina in the house. What about you, Jack? Um, I don't, we didn't call it vagina, but I don't think we called it anything. I think it was like your, like pointed, <laughs> your unmentionable or, or your private parts. <laughs> or like, I don't even know what we called it or if we called yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. But we've made sure like having, I have a 10 year old daughter and I've always told her to use the word vagina. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For so many reasons. <laughs> Safety yes. is one, but yeah, so she's more comfortable yeah. with it now. I and think now we're yeah. all open to it now, right? Or we're it's all at home. More of it. Yeah. I, I was uh, telling him that my husband sits upstairs with 17 animators on Zoom calls and all he hears from downstairs is vagina. vagina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What does your wife do? <laughs> so Kim, tell us what a vagina coach is. Um, well, I, I kind of just came up with the term one day because I was trying to summarize what it is that I do. And um, if, I, if I look back to when I started my business, it, it, I was focused primarily on pelvic health in women who are pregnant mm-hmm. and, and in the early postpartum phase. And at the time, my handle was fitness doula. So I, I was a personal trainer. I still am a personal trainer. And I had also trained as a doula. And so I combined those and called myself the fitness doula. And then as I started to work with different populations beyond pregnancy and motherhood and myself moving into perimenopause and now pretty much at menopause, the term fitness doula didn't necessarily resonate with everybody. Mm-hmm. One day I was printers, mompreneurs has changed their name, but it was the Canadian, the national conference for the mompreneur organization. And I was speaking and all the speakers at the conference were some sort of a business coach. And when it was my turn to speak, I came up on stage and I sort of joked, I said, well, now you have a, a vagina coach for your business. And it was like this light bulb moment that said, okay, there we go. I'm, I'm going to be a vagina coach. And, um, and so really what I, what I do is I educate and inform people about the pelvis, about the pelvic floor. Uh, so it's not just the vagina, it's everything kind of surrounding, but I come at it from a fitness perspective, fitness and movement and, and lifestyle education. And so that's kind of where the, the coach, I feel like sometimes I should have a ball cap and a whistle and a clipboard, right? And say, okay, mm-hmm. drop and give me 10 people. Um, <laughs> I love that. But, uh, yeah. So I, I help women understand, you know, how posture can be an influence, how exercise, how they can exercise in ways that actually supports their pelvic floor rather than contributes to some of the symptoms that they might be feeling. What are some of the strategies that they might be doing from a, a nutrition and, uh, and lifestyle habit perspective that could also be either contributing to or contaminating their pelvic health? So, so that's mm-hmm. what I do. I guide people through online programs and coaching through Zoom. I do everything online and I also have an app that, uh, that helps people get the information they need. Perfect. So um, can we start with the basics, Kim? Because I think there's a lot of confusion around what's a vagina, a labia, uh, a urethra. Like, I I think we probably have a basic understanding of what those parts are, but I don't think we really know what they are, what they do. And and one of the um, areas that I've learned that women tend to ignore um, when we go through... um, perimenopause and we are drying out a little bit is like women, we focus on those of us who know about our pelvic floor, focus on that, but we forget the external part of our body that also um, is prone to aging and needs moisture and conditioning and care too. Yeah. 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 You know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how many people I have worked with who 
who really don't have an understanding of their pelvic floor, people who have been sexually active, people who have been pregnant, people who have given birth, people, you know, we all menstruate, all of us who have a uterus menstruate. And so, and I'm also surprised that people don't know that we as female anatomy owners have three holes and that urine comes out of the urethra, not the vagina. Um, so we have the urethra, the vagina and, and the anus in terms of those being the three openings. And the pelvic floor muscles surround and sort of encompass those openings. And part of the role of the pelvic floor is to manage those openings. So we need those openings to stay closed when we don't want anything to come out. We want them to be able to expand and relax if we want something to come out or potentially even come in with regards to insertive sex. So that's pretty important information. And um, the pelvic floor also plays a role in supporting our internal organs. So bladder, uterus, rectum, and they play a role in our pelvic and spinal stability. So the attachment points, the muscles themselves attach at the base of our spine on our tailbone, attached to the, of our pelvis on the pubic joint. They also attach to two bones. If you kind of pull the flesh of your butt cheeks away, you'll feel one on either side called your sit bone. So those are the four attachment points. And because of the direct relationship to the, those attachment points, it's, it's a primary uh, player in our core mm -hmm. control. We've all heard of the core, right? Yeah. And the pelvic floor is kind of left out of that conversation. Mm -hmm. And the pelvic floor also plays a role in our sexual response. Um, so pleasure or potentially lack thereof. And the, so when we think of the arrangement of the organs, we have a bladder and we have the, the, the uterus sort of sits almost like resting almost on top. And then, and then we have a rectum and the little kind of tube that comes out of the bladder where our urine exits the body is the urethra. So that's attached to the bladder. And then we have the uterus here. And then the tube that comes basically down from the uterus would be our vagina. So the vagina is a tube in, in a sense. Yeah. And then we could say our rectum is kind of like a tube on, on the backside there as well. And that's what makes up those three openings, the vagina being one of them. And the, the vagina, when you talk about aging and drying out, it's, it is, it has um, tissue that is very, it loves estrogen. And when we no longer have circulating estrogen, as we get closer to and move beyond menopause, the folds within that tube become less foldy and more straight. And they, so the walls of the vagina start to narrow and the tissues start to thin a little bit, but that can also have an influence on the urethra as well. So tissues, the bladder is also estrogenic and that can influence the tissues in and around the bladder and the urethra as well. So when the tissue thins around the urethra, what, what would you notice happening? There are a few different things. There's a, a, a term called genitourinary syndrome of menopause. You can shorten that to GSM. A term that we used to have is atrophic vaginitis or vaginal atrophy. And the term atrophy is no one really likes to think of that, even though that is a descriptive term, it's, they, they moved away from that and then put a bunch of different conditions that happen in and around the pelvis under that genitourinary syndrome of menopause one of which is an increased frequency of UTIs, uh, vaginal dryness, pain with sex, urinary incontinence, um, organ prolapse, 
uh, even just like irritation. So kind of mm-hmm. burning and sensitivity sometimes post like after you've had insert of sex, you may experience bleeding. So those would be kind of the more common symptoms that could be associated with that. Okay. What's interesting to me when you like, we're really breaking down the anatomy is that I don't think a lot of people think about how critical the pelvis is to so many other parts of our body and as we age, when it's probably the most important time yeah. health, yet yeah. no one really tells us that as we age, right? So there's yeah. all these other underlying factors, especially when you're perimenopausal or menopausal that are affecting this area, which then in turn affects your bladder or, you know, your urinary continent or sorry, then in turn affects your mental health and your relationships and your social and your exercise. Like it, it, it boggles my mind, honestly. Like when I think about when I started and I still have a a huge passion with educating pregnant women and, and, and um, people about preparing the body and preparing the pelvic floor for birth and also recovering more optimally postpartum. So that, that became a a big focus of mine, but really now what I think is, I think the conversation should start when we are learning about sexual health, about our bodies, when we are in grade school, wouldn't that be an amazing opportunity to introduce the concept that this is a really, really important group of muscles and it plays a role in this and this and this. And because Mm -hmm we have female anatomy, we are going to menstruate. We, the majority of us are going to become pregnant. The, all of us are going to go through menopause and all mm-hmm. of those, those kind of life, um, life cycles or life phases have a direct influence on that. And, and re- so right now it's more of a, a reactive. We, all of a sudden we have these changes and then we go searching for these answers and we're kind of thrown bandaid solutions. And we we're told from media, we're supposed to accept it. But if we were told from a young age and we were prepared, then I think we would have better maternal outcomes from a pregnancy perspective. I think we would have less people, you know, accepting incontinence and wearing pads for the majority of their life because they would know the signs early and they would know who to see and they would know that they can take action and and overcome those. those What's interesting to me too, is like, I think about a coach, right? I think about a trainer that I've hired to, you know, get back in shape. And I wonder now, like, had that been part of my fitness regime? Like, what if I had a trainer that was like, we're doing this for your pelvic health. Here are some other things we're doing, but it needs to be incorporated in your fitness plan. Yep. I would have done it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what we, when, so I, I had formed a second business with two other women and another trainer like myself, as well as a pelvic therapist. And we were all talking about, we lacked different certifications and not once was the pelvic floor mentioned. And that's often, fitness is often a time where you see lineups of women at the bathroom. You see people, women leaving class halfway through to go to the bathroom. You have women mm-hmm. avoiding certain exercises Yeah, and, and not once was that conversation had. So we, we created a certification to address that because fitness professionals, absolutely. They are in such a, an, an amazing opportunity to, to screen for these, not, not um, they can't diagnose obviously, but they can screen for this with the health history questionnaires that they go through. And then from there, if they are certified and understand how the pelvic floor works and, and fitness 
as it pertains to the pelvic floor, they can then prescribe movement that would actually help their clients be able to do the, those movements that they've been avoiding and not have to leave class halfway through. Um, so we've had that certification since um, mm-hmm. 2013 or so. And uh, it's one of my favorite things to do is to teach other fitness professionals because their minds are blown and they all say the same thing. Like I know every other muscle in the body, but I don't know this group. And this is a really important group of muscles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it bugs me a lot that um, now that Ramona and I've taken our research outside of North America somewhat, um, we've said this before in our podcast in France, they get pelvic floor therapy after having a baby and it's incorporated into their healthcare plan. Like they don't pay extra for it and they know what it is. We do a lot of women we talk to don't know that there is such a thing as pelvic floor therapy. And some women don't even know that we have a pelvic floor. I really didn't know I had a pelvic floor, honestly, till after I had a baby and, or what it did or how it worked or didn't work. And, um, I think the problem is, and this is a little bit ranty, but in North America, I feel like we're kind of ass backwards. Um, Women are taught that peeing your pants is normal and it's common, but it's not normal. And I think that the problem we have now is that so many brands and companies have developed all these products targeted to this market of women who have babies and have urinal incontinence. Like there's products for the gym, products for walking. Like they're like, you know, a less senior-esque level type of panty liner. And there's been so much money put into that category, you know, between like product development and packaging and marketing, they're not going to pull that massive revenue stream out of the market. They want us to keep peeing our pants. They want us to keep needing those products. Yeah. 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 I couldn't agree more. And and there's, um, you know, I, I cringe at the messages. So the ones that say mm-hmm. that light bladder leakage is just part of being a woman or oh. the ones that say, you know, th- like the most recent one was, you know, a, a, an entrepreneur at home and she's got her child who she drops off, even if her bladder, or she picks up her daughter, even if her bladder makes a little drop off. And I, I just think like, oh, I, I just cringe at these messages. And then that's the unfortunate part is because there are so many people who, whether it's media telling them that that's just the way that it is, or maybe they have been, I hear from people all the time who are dismissed by their healthcare providers. Absolutely. And with, with all due respect to, to the, to the way our system is in North America, the medical providers, we don't have, we have seven to 10 minutes and their job is to screen out kind of more sinister things. And we can't mm-hmm. have really elaborate conversations yeah. where you mm-hmm. can just one thing at, at, at a time. And they're also, they don't receive training really mm-hmm. specific to pelvic floor exercise. They, they usually will say, go home and do your Kegels. But again, there's no evaluation. There's no, nobody being taught how to do that. No. And they aren't trained about menopause. So, so, you know, we, we need a better understanding that we need a village for our our health overall with pelvic health being one of them. And again, back to the introduction to school age, if, if we're taught about pelvic floor exercise, if we're taught about all the different influences that happen and how important that group of muscles is. And if we're taught that pelvic health physiotherapists are our best ally, Mm -hmm. like when we learn about, oral health, right? We, we are told we need to brush our teeth twice a day. We need to floss and we see the dentist once or twice a year and we get conditioned to do that, right? We need the same PR that dentists have to, to say that let we go to the pelvic health physiotherapist once a year for a checkup, even Mm -hmm. if we have no symptoms and then it becomes the norm. And it's not something that we're going into quote unquote therapy for 
or we're just, we're going to have a checkup. And then we, those people know that if, if something doesn't feel right, or if they do experience a leak, they, they don't sit and wait for years and years and years and potentially get dismissed by people. They go right away yeah. and they get on top of that uh, before it becomes a major issue. Absolutely. Like it, it feels almost like a no brainer, um, just having it part of your regular health routine annually. Right. We all have our specialists that we see throughout the year regularly, whether we need to need to or not. So why can't this be part of that? Right. Yeah. Hey, Jackie, let's take a break and talk about why you look so rested and sound far less moody these days. <laughs> Are you saying I normally look haggard and sound <laughs> cranky, Ramona? <laughs> well, no, but you have to admit, you seem more rested. Well, I do feel more rested since I got the Simone nightgown from the Partridge Berry apparel line. And I won't lie, when we spoke with Kathy, the founder behind Cool Your Sweats, maker of the nightgowns and pillowcases, I felt a little reluctant to believe that anything could cure our sweaty nights. I guess we can't call them a cure because they don't prevent night sweats or hot flashes, but the fabric is a blend of hemp and organic cotton, which naturally wicks away moisture and heat, storing some of the heat until your body needs it again. Like when you've kicked off all the covers and then you're freezing cold. (laughs) I still keep the fan on and the window open, but I can honestly say that I'm waking up way less now and it's super comfy to sleep in. Um, I also got the pillowcase because my neck and head sweat a lot too, but I find with a pillowcase, I don't have that problem anymore. I don't have a sweaty hot pillow. Oh, so is it made of the same thing as our nightgowns? Um, It has hemp as well and lyosil. Um, And it looks like heavy linen, but it's way more effective at managing heat and moisture. So not constantly sitting up and flipping my pillow to find a cool spot which is part of what wakes Greg up every night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what I really liked about it was actually the fit because it was loose enough to hide my bits, but (laughs) like like it kind of hugged my shape as well. So I just didn't feel like this frumpy old hag in bed. (laughs) Yeah, and it doesn't ride up, which is what I normally find when I try nightgowns. That's why I avoid them. But I found with this one, it's it doesn't ride up to my waist. So do you like feel a little more sexy in your nightgown? Okay, Ramona, it's bedtime. I want to feel sleepy, <laughs> not sexy. I have lots of sexy time clothes if I want to initiate that. Although with my libido in the toilet, that hasn't been happening much lately. So I'm sure an oversized sweatshirt would turn my husband on at this point. <laughs> and the more sleep you get, the better you feel. So who knows, maybe you'll even get your libido back into the double digits one day. <laughs> Ramona, it's a nightgown, not a miracle. If you want your Simone nightgown, visit CoolYourSweats.com and use She 2.0 to get 10% off your first order. You're you're like a passionate promoter of pelvic health. You you have this certification, but you also have a personal experience with some of this stuff. Would you like feel comfortable sharing some of that with our audience? Yeah, absolutely. That's how we learn. And that's how we understand that we're not alone in this, right? When we, you hear other people's stories and me being like, I'm a vagina coach and I still have sad, sad issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very common. So I I remember being, uh, it was after the birth of my second son and I was in 
an exercise class. And I, at that point, I did not know about pelvic floor physical therapy. I knew a few things that I had done from a birth preparation perspective um, to prevent tearing and to prevent incontinence sort of thing. But what I had attributed to was if I don't tear, then I won't have incontinence. That's kind of what my level of understanding was at the time. So I didn't have any tearing. I had done some Kegel exercises and some, some training and I thought I was good. And then it was several months after the birth of my second, when again, I was in an exercise class doing, doing um, jumping jacks, which is all, uh, often oh, a trigger. Yeah. And all of a sudden I, I felt like ooh, a little bit of leaking and I thought, oh my gosh, what? So I stopped doing that exercise and then it wasn't long afterwards when I found out about pelvic floor physical therapy, because I had started selling this product that I had used in my birth and it was a, a pelvic floor physical therapist that started to refer to me. And then I said, you know, who are you and what do you do and how can I learn more? And then as soon as I learned, then that's when I started sort of shouting from the rooftop. So that was my first, and I was able to overcome that very quickly once I learned the principles of, you know, core function, pelvic floor function, and, and, and that, that hasn't been a problem ever again. Years later, I developed um, prolapse. So prolapse is where the bladder, the uterus, and or the rectum shift out of their optimal anatomical position, and they can bulge into or descend into the vagina. And um, it was it was years, years after that, even that I had first heard the term prolapse. So I knew about pelvic floor mm-hmm. physical therapy. I knew about incontinence, but it wasn't until a few years after that that I had learned about prolapse. And then again, statistically, prolapse is actually more common than incontinence. So why aren't we screening? (laughs) It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that either. um, Yeah. So then I had, um, I was told that I had scar tissue internally. So even though I didn't tear externally, my, when I first went to a pelvic floor physical therapist, they said, oh, you have some internal scar tissue. And when I reflect back on my first birth, I remember feeling afterwards, like I had a golf ball kind of Mm. that I was sitting on a ball right by my bum. And that was the start of, of my rec it's called a rectal seal where the rectum bulges into your vagina. So it was, it was asymptomatic for many, many years. And, um, and I remember one day, so uh, as a sidebar, I was also unbeknownst at the time I was dealing with an autoimmune condition, which mm-hmm. contributes to constipation. So all of a sudden out of the blue, I became very constipated and I, I had no idea why, cause I was I'd never had been. And I always, I was still doing the same things and eating and fiber and water and all that stuff. And so it took me several years to figure out what was going on. But in that time of struggling with constipation, constipation is a huge, uh, it, it's not friendly to the pelvic floor. And so if you're mm-hmm. consistently straining, yeah, I ended up having a uterine prolapse and it exacerbated the uh, rectocele that I had, that I think would have started right from my first birth. I don't know that hundred percent because I didn't know about pelvic floor physical therapy at that time. And um, so I was able to reverse the stage two uterine prolapse. So prolapse is graded by how far down the, the prolapse or the organ is out of its position. Mm-hmm. And the closer to the entrance to the vagina, it becomes a higher grade. So a grade three would be where the bulge is right at the entrance to the vagina. And a grade four would be where the bulge is actually outside. So if you can imagine seeing almost like a scrotum outside of the opening of the vagina, that's kind of what a fourth grade four prolapse would look like, which is really scary for people. Mm. So if they've never, if they've never heard this term, they've never been screened, they don't know. And all of a sudden one day they 
feel like they feel a pop, I hear, or they wipe and mm. all of a sudden they felt a bulge or they see something. They all, everybody, like every, every single person who sees or feels something thinks they have cancer. They think of they have course. a tumor and that's really, really mm-hmm. scary. Right. Um, I, mine was never advanced so that I, I never saw anything. I, f- I didn't actually feel my, my uterine prolapse until I was having um, sex with my husband. And all of a sudden it just like, this is TMI maybe, but he thrust it in and, and it just like, oh, I just kind of jolted and said, ow, like it feel like you hit something. Mm. And um, so I, I had no signs of it early yeah. on at all. Wow. Yeah. So that's, uh, and then, oh, sorry. One, my last little point, I, I overcome, I overcame the stage two uterine prolapse. I was able to reverse that with a specific exercise technique called the hypopressive method. But nothing, no matter what I did, even figuring out how autoimmunity got constipation under control, all of that, my rectocele still stayed the same. And I eventually had surgery for that. I had it just over a year ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I lived with it symptomatically for uh, about nine years. And would there have been anything that you could have done to, to repair that um, had you known sooner or it was just one of those things? Sometimes yes. So I think the the majority of people there there is um one study that that looked at a, a huge number of people at six weeks postpartum. It was eighty ish percent whether you've given birth vaginal or cesarean who have some degree of prolapse. It's very very common, and I think that if we intervene again with that um, an understanding of postpartum recovery and restorative exercise, retraining the core, seeing the pelvic floor physical therapist at eight weeks postpartum or post-op even. But I, I feel like if we, if we mitigate or if we come in, we mitigate that risk. And there are certain times where there is damage to ligaments, in which case, no matter how much exercise you do, there mm-hmm. will, you won't correct that. And there is also something else called a levator avulsion, which statistically around 30 ish percent of people who give birth vaginally will experience where part of one of the pelvic floor muscles sort of pulls away from the bone. And Mm. that is not something that can be surgically repaired there. I think there are, I've heard of anecdotally a couple of surgeons in the world who are experimenting with that, but right now it can't be, it can't be surgically repaired. And those people are at an increased risk of prolapse. So if you, if you don't know that information and you go back to exercise at six weeks postpartum, because you've been cleared or you start to do, um, you know, you're not managing your intra-abdominal pressure well, and all of a sudden one day you feel that, or you see it, then, um, you know, I think we have a bigger hill to climb. It's never too late. There are lots of things that we can do. And if we catch it early, we have a much better opportunity to improve it. Some, I, I know, I mean, I reversed a stage two uterine prolapse mm-hmm. and I know many people who've made significant improvements, if not reversed theirs as well. Wow. Like, so what are the most common issues you see um, with, with your clients? Incontinence and prolapse are the two biggest for sure. And sometimes people have both. Um Incontinence statistically is, you know, somewhere between 30 and 40 ish percent. Usually it's around 34, 35% somewhere in there. I think it's higher than that, but that's reported cases. Again, we also have some evidence to support that women are taking six to seven years before they even seek help. And at that point, you know, again, they're, they're often maybe dismissed or told it's normal. And so there's many who just don't even report it. 
prolapse, it's one in two. So 50% of women have some degree of prolapse. And we had that other stat that was the, the six week postpartum statistic. And then, you know, that might be early stage. And then a lot of prolapse will early stage prolapse will potentially resolve. So ongoing, it's about a 50%. And so those two hands down are the most common in terms of what I deal with, but the other pieces that can come along with that, that people don't necessarily know are correlated, uh, especially is back pain and pelvic pain. So a lot of people experience low back pain. There's one uh, piece of research out of Canada that showed 95%, 95 95.3, I think it was percent of the women in that study who presented with low back pain also had some form of pelvic floor dysfunction. So it's not to say that low back pain causes pelvic floor, you know, but, but they're very correlated. And, and how many people do you know with low back pain who see a massage therapist, chiropractor, mm-hmm. acupuncture, you know, do fitness, whatever they do. And, and those are all the, those all can absolutely be helpful. I'm not dismissing that, but we don't know about pelvic floor physical therapy. And a lot of people who come to me and start improving their core function they now they're like, my back pain has gone away. And, you know, my urgency that I used to have has gone away. So, okay. So this is enraging me a lot. So now I have something (laughs) new to rant about. Um, So I have back pain in my lower right back, whatever. I don't know what left, I don't know what it is. Anyway, um, I've had an x-ray done twice since I've had my daughter. I had a really difficult birth. I ended up by having um, an emergency C-section and an epidural because I'm not a martyr. And my doctor (laughs) said, well, some people just end up with this pain after the epidural for the rest of their lives. I'm like, that doesn't feel normal. So I have to sleep now. I can't sleep on my stomach because it feels like I'm overextending my lower back. And when I sleep on my side, I can't have my legs too close together. I have to put a pillow and I have to sit like sleep perfectly on my side. I can't lean forward or the pain is really bad. So this is literally the reason my husband and I got a king size bed because we are now sleeping with a third person in our queen <laughs> bed, the, the um, body pillow. And I am going to get some pelvic floor therapy after my daughter's 10 years old. And I've heard stories, Ramona and I have heard stories and Ramona, I think you even have one similar to this or somebody Mm -hmm. does, but where they had this continuing problem, didn't know what it was related to and went in and got their pelvic floor therapy and it was fixed. Yeah, I can't believe that no one ever suggested to me that... Instead of spending taxpayers' dollars on x-raying me. I know. It's it's alarming like, to me. And it's not, you know, it, what how much, it doesn't even take extra time. See uh-uh. if you're a therapist. Like, what did that take me? Like, not, um, a second? Uh, a second and a half, mm-hmm. right? So, and yeah. the other piece to consider on cesareans, people who have cesarean births will often say, well, my vagina is fine. My pelvic floor is fine because I didn't give birth. Mm. Uh, there are a lot of anatomical, physiological, biomechanical changes that are happening in our body as we adapt to this, this shifting center of gravity. We have muscles that are, you know, tissues that are stretching beyond their optimal length. We then go through birth. We also have hormonal influences. We then go through birth, whether it's vaginal or cesarean. 
and people who give birth vaginally, the high likelihood that you will have some tearing within the perineum. So part of the mm-hmm. pelvic floor, people who give birth by, via cesarean, there will have multiple layers of incision. So both of those, the tearing and the incisions leave scar tissue mm-hmm. and scar yeah. tissue can interfere with the optimal function of the pelvic floor muscles, even if it's in the abdomen, which you don't think is necessarily in the pelvic floor, there's multiple layers of it. And it's all, we're all connected. And when we have a disruption or an interruption to the communication within our core, we have parts that might be overworking. We have other parts that maybe are underworking. So, so uh, tightness and overactivity with presentation of pelvic pain, low back pain, incontinence, all that types of thing is very common after cesarean birth. And sometimes it can be retraining the muscles. Sometimes it can be learning how to relax overactive muscles. And sometimes it can be manipulating and improving the, um, like releasing the adhesions and the tension of the scar tissue. And, and, and again, like these, these, this can be life changing for people in a matter of one to three sessions and, and people just don't know about it. This is just, well, anyway, this is crazy. It's crazy that we don't know this. It's crazy that one in two women, one in three, like it it just blows my mind that it's so common Mm -hmm. and we don't know about this. Even I know that there is, there are advancements. Ramona and I have been having some really interesting discussions. There are advancements in the healthcare industry where they are trying to train doctors, how to communicate with us better about all of this. And, you know, like they are the gatekeepers, but where do they defer us to? Um, But it is sort of um, upsetting to hear how much money and time money wasted, time wasted, unnecessary pain, unnecessary discomfort, unnecessary strain on relationships, all because we just don't talk about it. Um, Yeah. So I'm curious. So I feel like I'm going to say we've had a lot of people ask this question, but we haven't. I'm going to ask it. Um, So if you're having painful sex and you feel like, you know, you either have um, atrophy or, um, oh my gosh. And see menopause. Um, what's the word we keep talking Prolapse. about? Prolapse. Prolapse. Thank you. Yeah. Um, or you don't even know what you have. You just know that yeah. it's painful mm-hmm. and dry. The thought of going for pelvic floor therapy is a little bit scary for me. Yeah. Like I have an appointment. I'm like, Ooh, you're going to put mm-hmm. your hand up there. Mm-hmm. Like, um, is it painful? Well, I mean, I get somebody who is experiencing pelvic pain depends on the reasons why they are experiencing pain. So there's many different contributing factors to pelvic pain or pain with sex. So dryness being one of them. Mm-hmm. And generally when you use, um, you know, a vaginal moisturizer or the right type of lubricant, then most people can accommodate a finger, which is what is used to evaluate the pelvic floor oh, with, okay. without discomfort. Mm-hmm. So, that's one. So that's the kind of the tissue, the dryness piece. If somebody has overactivity in their muscles, meaning their muscles are kind of on high alert and they're non, they aren't relaxing. Mm-hmm. That can create pain either. Or cool. There, there could be some discomfort, but, mm. but uh, this is uh, this is an important piece. The, the therapist will never do anything without your consent. They will never do anything that will exacerbate and, and contribute to an, uh, you know a flare up or anything like that. So, 
there can sometimes be, depending again on the person, it may be fingers. Uh, there's some products called dilators, which can help. So people who really struggle with allowing, like be, even being able to insert a tampon or, you know, whatever, there's different sizes of things that can, they can work together to train that person and their pelvic floor to be able to accommodate something coming in. And mm-hmm. initially there could be some discomfort there. And it's really important to establish a trusting relationship with your therapist. It is a very intimate therapy and it's important to find somebody who you do connect with because you, it's a part of the body that there can be shame and embarrassment and trauma sometimes associated. And if you have a history of pain going in, you will be apprehensive, right? Well, like a pap smear, you're going to tighten right up. Nothing like a pap smear. Yeah. Oh no. I, but I just mean like, you know, if you've never had pelvic floor therapy or don't know, don't know it exists, like every woman I know dreads her pap smear because Mm -hmm. that speculum is so bloody big. Um, (laughs) And yeah, Yeah, there's no, no speculums in pelvic floor physical therapy. It's yeah. But it it makes it worse because you tighten up. You can't relax no matter what you do because, Mm -hmm. and then it's it's just uncomfortable. Right. For someone to go down there. I do want to reassure our listeners because um, I have tried pelvic therapy and I actually need to go back again. But so I've, I've done it. And I know I can speak from personal experience that my experience was very positive. Um, And, and yeah, it, I had the, so I've had two cesareans and I was surprised to hear about scar tissue as well. Uh, my pelvic floor therapist um, had some sort of laser therapy as well that was to help externally on my on my wound because even she was talking about my actual wound being like scar tissue as well and like it constricting movement in my pelvic area. And then she also went in to investigate and she did discover that there was some muscles there that were how you were describing it, like for lack of a better term, like hyperactive or very, you know, very tense, um, which was causing me pain during intercourse. And so she was, showed me like she was pressing on this area and I, I, it amazed me that there's this muscle there that actually was causing me physical pain externally, but it was internal. And the only way for me to help alleviate that pain was to do some exercises internally. And you can get like a little wand that you're able to press on the area to help alleviate the pain. And for people who have like, trouble inserting it's it's good because it helps you sort of almost like exercise and train your body to be able to receive something internally right so all this to say that I've actually done it and and I really think it's an important part of our overall healthcare journey um and it wasn't it wasn't bad (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm glad you brought that part up. That the there's lots of different, you know, therawands, pelvic wands that can allow us to be able to self-treat. So people who may not have access to a pelvic floor physical therapist or people who may, you know, they go once and they understand what they need to do and they can self-manage at home. It's mm-hmm. like trigger point therapy or massage therapy on the rest of our body. We sometimes get kind of knots or tense spots that the therapist can work through so we can help them help release that. 
and wands are great. And there's even some that are uh, vibrating wands that the vibration actually helps elicit a relaxation mm-hmm. response as well. Mm-hmm. But the other point that I want to make there is a lot of people who experience prolapse and incontinence have overactive muscles and people think if I'm leaking urine or if I'm losing organ support, that must mean I have weak lax muscles and therefore I need to strengthen them. And the exercise to strengthen is Kegel exercises. And so they go and either try Kegel Kegel exercises at home. And we know Mm -hmm. most people do do them incorrectly, but even if they were doing them correctly, if that person, it needs to work more on the relaxation, adding more of the the interpretation of a Kegel, which is the squeeze, adding more of that is going to exacerbate the sensations of potentially pain or incontinence or prolapse. And the other thing that happens is it's kind of a chicken in the egg. People with incontinence and prolapse become guarded and their muscles become overactive because they're afraid of leaking or because they're afraid they, they have that sensation of feeling like something is going to fall out. And it seems counterintuitive to need to learn how to relax the muscles. So I think it's important that people understand that a, a Kegel exercise is a form of pelvic floor exercise. We have evidence to support that they, they work when they're done correctly, when they're done consistently mm-hmm. in the right person. Not everybody needs to do Kegels the same way. They don't all need to focus on the, the contract, mm-hmm. like the squeeze part. There's a lift part that a lot of people don't know about. And there's a relaxation. Just like mm-hmm. when, I, when I lift, when I do a bicep exercise, I don't just hold my arm in with my hand close to my shoulder. And that's my bicep exercise. I, my arm goes through a full range of motion and the pelvic floor needs to do the same thing. That's interesting. Cause it sounds like such a lack of communication. We all assume the problem is um, we need to tighten up, you know, and then there's people like me who humble brag and we're like, well, I'm very tight. And that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is I'm in a lot of pain. Like, Yeah. And a lot of people have an interpretation that tight is strong. If their pelvic floor is tight, that must mean it's a strong muscle, but you can have a tight, weak muscle. And, and therefore, you know, if if you have a tight, weak muscle, adding more Kegel exercises or or Kegel weights, which a lot of people then go to, or the PeriFit, which are the LV, the biofeedback devices, nothing wrong with the devices, but when it needs to be used with the right, with the right pelvic floor. <laughs> so we need to have an understanding of what our pelvic floor needs. And that's why we see pelvic floor physical therapists to help us understand, you know, I have, I have overactivity. I need to work more on the relaxation mm-hmm. initially. I think we still benefit from some Kegels every once in a while, but, um, but focus more on that relaxation. Other people who may have a bit of laxity, they would need to work more on that sort of upregulation where they do work on the, the contract and lift portion. So having that understanding, I think is really valuable. And not everybody has access to pelvic floor physical therapy, but we can also self-assess. We have our own biofeedback with our own fingers and we can, I walk people through, I've got videos on my YouTube channel about how to evaluate. Um, we can also look for signs. Do I have pain? Do I have pain with sex? Do I have difficulty starting the flow of urine? Do I experience constipation? Those can also be signs that there may be some overactivity or tightness in the pelvic floor. Okay. And I think it's really important to note that there is not a one size fits all solution for everybody. So like you see it another 
physical therapist and you have back pain, we don't all get the same treatment for our back pain, right? Everyone's is different. And it's the same with your pelvic floor. Thousand percent. We are all individuals. We all have individual health histories. We all have different, you know, potentially birth histories, sexual health, uh, surgical, like all sorts of things, nutrition, diet, all sorts of things can contribute to, um, to what our pelvic floor may be the state of our pelvic floor, so to speak. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Kegels are often thrown out as here you go. That just go home and do your Kegels. Band-aid solution. Right. It's the the one size fits all solution. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, Kim, that was an education. I did not see all that coming, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it was wonderful. And I think you, you answered so many questions, but you also raised a lot of questions for us, um, which is going to keep us trying to find more and more information. But um, I'm excited to share this with our audience because I really do feel like when we get the short end of the stick, and we don't even understand our own bodies. And this is just another example of how little understanding we are provided and, and that we have. So it helps us to advocate for better health care, but it helps us to advocate for our own personal health care and push harder for answers and not just allow ourselves to be dismissed by the healthcare system. Yes, a thousand percent. Hallelujah. And um, I want everyone to know that light bladder leakage is not just part of being a woman. It's not, you don't need to accept pads as your destiny and that it's never too late to overcome these challenges. That's another common misconception is that, Oh, well, I had my kids 25 years ago or, you know, and now, and now it's too late, but also people who've never been pregnant can experience these issues. That's another important point to, to leave off with. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because as you get older and you go through perimenopause things, you, you produce less collagen and Hyaluronic, these things are going to happen. You're not safe if you haven't had kids. Um, that that was really wonderful. It, it's a bit depressing to think that you get out of diapers, then you get your first period and they've got us back into pads for the rest of our lives. You have like five years off your whole life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder it's such a big market. Yeah. Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.